0: Am I on, Rod? I'm on. I'm not special music for the offertory. I'm not going to be singing a song. Good morning. My name's Sam. I'm from um, one of the other four or five churches that are south side of the freeway. South Abbotsford Church. Just go down, McCallum, take a right, take, you know, wherever you, if you hit Huntington and you can come and come and see where we hang out on Sunday. I brought my family uh, with us, Zachary, Anna, and my wife Heidi are here as well this morning. And it's an honor to worship together with you. I am, um, I, I am, I love the creed we just sang. I, I believe in God the Father. I mean, if I'm gonna introduce myself, I'm gonna say I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one, amen? That is who we Serve. That's who unites us today. So we're a family. And um, as much as I love the little fellowship South Abbotsford down the road, I'm probably more likely to bump into most of you at Starbucks. Or um, if you like to cycle, you can join us on Tuesday nights and I'll bump into you in tights and that'll be weird. But um, I would say, hey, we're the family of God in this city. We are the body of Christ. We're longing for revival, we're longing for a change. Good, blow the walls off this thing. Make it bigger. And uh, because there's more seats to fill. I, I, I wasn't thinking of this, but I love Piper, John Piper. His, uh, his little phrase at the beginning of a famous book he wrote called "Let the Nations Be Glad, he says, mission exists because worship doesn't. Think about that. We, you know, mission, we have a mission because not enough people are worshiping. And you're called into places where there are the least worshipers. And this little city, we like to, I don't know where we kind of, we're a city in the country, right? This Abbotsford is just a small little drop in the bucket on the earth. And there's still people in this city who are not worshiping Jesus. And we have a mission. And mission exists because these pews aren't full. Mission exists because people still are longing for Jesus. And it was such a blast to hang out with a bunch of these guys and gals who were on the video in Vancouver last week. I, I was there most of the week, sleeping on the floor, you know, hanging out, getting to teach, worshiping together. But I'm telling you, what happened in our hearts could have happened to anybody at any age. And you don't have to sleep on the floor to have a mission trip. But we were inspired by what God's doing in the city. And um, it, it, it was changing us. We were learning about the big story. We called it, a, our theme was a story worth telling. This big story about this triune God. And our little piece of the story, our story intersecting with that. And people are hungry and longing to know about that. Plus, it changes me. And uh, I, I was really encouraged this week. Um, it is a privilege and an honor to kind of intersect into your, um, your Sermon on the Mount series. A Better Way, I think, is what Pastor Tim kicked off on July 9th um, as you started the Beatitudes, right, in Matthew 5. And um, I'm gonna dive right in this morning. Um, The the context here, as soon as, before I read it, the verses that I've got, I've got verses 13 to 20, I believe, yes, and I better get it right, or Tim's gonna come after me. You know, in in chapter five, verse one, where Jesus gathers the, you know, the disciples and the crowds are there, and um, it says, Jesus sat down and he began to teach. And it wasn't like, We just had, you know, how'd you have four or five Sundays in between and and different themes as you unpacked those wonderful Beatitudes? Um, The the crowd's still there, friends. And Jesus is still sitting and he's still teaching. I remember a teacher on a Trek program, which is a little bit longer than SOAR that MB Mission runs, a discipleship training program. A Messianic, awesome Jewish guy came. His name's Steve Lytle. And he said, when Jesus sat down... That was the place of authority for a Jewish rabbi to teach from. So I asked for a lazy boy, and uh, I didn't get it. I guess it's not culturally appropriate. No, I didn't ask for one. But Jesus, my friends, is still teaching from that sitting position, the place of authority. We stand up right in the classroom. We stand up to give our testimony. Jesus is sitting, and he's still sitting. And he's saying to people, He's just walked through those wonderful phrases that you've been unpacking. Maybe you've been here for some of them, maybe you've missed them all, but the Beatitudes are amazing invitations to be blessed are you in these different moments. But Jesus now is making a shift and he's he's in verse 13, he's actually saying, let let me sum it up in another way. Let me put it to you in another way. The message actually says in uh, verse 13, let me tell you, why you are here. So let's read verses 13 to 20 of um, Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've been here for a little while. You've been reflecting on the Beatitudes. Have you been here for any one of those messages this summer? Has, have you made a commitment? Have they... Have they kind of changed your life in some positive way? This, did they shape the living in some way? Did you make a commitment to be, you know, maybe more meek or maybe more humble or maybe hunger and thirst more for some righteousness? Are you looking to be the ones who inherit that kingdom that Jesus is inviting the crowds and the disciples to? Great. That's what it means to be salt and light. <laughs> did it influence anybody in your neighborhood this week? or last week, or the week before, great, let's go home. That's being salt and light. My son Zachary goes, yes, shortest sermon dad ever preached. But seriously, Jesus is saying that is who you are in these words. He is saying, you are the light of, you are the salt of the earth. You are are the light of the world. I love how one commentator puts it. I could have put it on the screen, but I didn't. He puts a bracket before you, and he says, it is, bracket, you, bracket, who are. It is you who are the salt of the earth. It is you who are the light of the world. It just focuses it right on us. Look at the, you know, we'd be right if we questioned, though, right at this moment, as Jesus moves out of the Beatitudes, go and just ask the question, like, Really? What are a bunch of meek, pure in heart, peace seeking Christians going to actually have on this hostile, secular society, this crazy world that we live in? Really? Do you get a little skeptical that they're going to actually, like, that that's what salt and light actually means? Apparently, Jesus doesn't share that skepticism. He's call, calling these Palestinian peasants to just look lift their eyes up, and consider something a little bit bigger. He's actually saying it's possible, friends, to be salt and light. It's as possible and as easy as it is to be persecuted. That's how easy it is. And you heard that message last week. If you weren't here, listen to it. It's great. It's it's easy. It's not for some super spiritual elite. Don't forget, it's disciples and the crowds. It is you. Clearly we can say it's not just for an exclusive few. There's a mixture of all kinds of people. It's not for the ones who are really, 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 really going to be persecuted. You know, maybe the ones who are going to be hung upside down or something crazy like that or have people spit or punch you in the face for your Bible-bashing faith. No, this is a reality for all of us. And let's remind ourselves of the scope for just a second here. You're the salt of, underline it, the earth. You are the light of the world. That's a broad scope. That's a big, inclusive picture. When you put a lamp, it says, on a lampstand, it gives light to, underline it, circle it, highlight, all in the house. There's more people that need some light, friends. We're to influence this whole planet 24-7, seven days a week, I guess that's what 24-7 means, huh? (laughs) Amen? Like, is that not what Jesus is just reminding them to and pausing and going, that's who you are? So let's take a look. He uses two household kind of realities to, to describe the metaphor of our influence. I call this sermon, Is Your Influence Worth Its Salt? Let's look at saltiness for a minute. When people hear Jesus say salt, they would have understood it to mean many things. Salt was life. Salt was useful, salt was traded as a commodity. It preserved meat, it flavored meat. It was also used as a purifying, cleansing agent. Salt had purpose, it had meaning. Now we take it for granted, it's sold in bulk, it's cheap. There's all different kinds of it, but we still need it. Our muscles would cramp without it. Our food would taste horrible like Gordon Ramsay would have a fit. If we didn't have seasoning, right? Apparently, we still give it to our cattle with salt licks, or some people still do. We need salt. There was inherent value in salt. You've heard that saying, are you worth your salt? That probably comes from a culture similar to Roman culture where salt had value. This guy or this gal, they're worth their pay. They're worth something. But what about this question, if salt has lost its taste, can its saltiness be restored? Is that a rhetorical question? I asked a bunch of other questions. Does flavorless salt exist? Does saltless salt exist? Would unsalty salt be called salt? I don't know if it's really possible. Let's just think about it bland or unpalatable food, there's a solution for it. It's called salt. Like, There's a solution for meat. I got to be careful here because my mom made a wonderful roast but sometimes left it in the oven just a little long and it came out and it was, you know, gray and dry and, you know, it was powdery kind of. Not like roast should be And it. I think my family was allergic to seasoning and garlic because my dad would say, I taste that all day. He still does, right, guys? I love grandpa. But he, I'm like, Could we get a little flavor on that meat, please? Flavorless meat has a solution. But apparently, saltless salt doesn't taste less salt. So we, what do we do? We trash it. We throw it away. Apparently, actually, I did a little research on this, not very long, but apparently there is a way in a lab to pass an electrical current through a grain of salt and you can divide its properties up. But I don't think... Jesus was thinking about doing that on that day. Do you? I mean, no. He was probably thinking about contaminated salt or salt that had been dirty or mixed up with sand or something in some way or just simply diluted. And he's saying that kind of salt in verse 13 is no longer fit for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Mark 9, verse 50 says, salt is good, but if it's lost its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what does it mean to be salty in, in Mark's verse, chapter 9, verse 50? Being at peace with one another. No peace, no salt. You're worth not much. I thought of Revelation 3.16 when Jesus is talking about these churches, and he's actually saying, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What would be the appropriate adjective to describe that kind of Christian? Useless, impractical, inadequate, unserviceable to me? That's pretty depressing. Apparently, our influence, friends, is conditional on how salty we are. Could we lose our influence? Can we lose modify the salinity? Do you know what salinity is? I used to keep saltwater fish. I used to keep freshwater fish. I like saltwater better because I think they're prettier. But they're also more expensive. (laughs) And I had a 70-gallon aquarium, which I had for years, and I loved the fish. I loved the ecosystem and and all of the, the chemistry that goes around with goes on with that little hobby of pH balance and toxins and, and all of the, the temperature things. But you know there's also, when you're dealing with salt water, there's a salinity factor in the water. That's the, the measure of salt. And it's just really easy to explain this way. As warm water, which is what the, the tank was, it's tropical fish, evaporates at least every two days. You, I should have done it every day, but I wasn't the best fish keeper. You add a little bit, of fresh water because the water is evaporating and as it evaporates, the salt water, the salinity in the water goes up, right? Because the salt stays in the water. And these poor little fish are like, you know, like, they're not used to this. They're totally shocked. Apparently in the ocean, the salinity of the ocean is 35 parts of salt per thousand on average. And it's a rather stable environment. It will fluctuate by one part Per million or whatever, on one side of the ocean to the other side. It does fluctuate, but it's a pretty stable environment, not like a 70-gallon tank. That's a pretty small environment for these poor fish. Shouldn't the salinity of every church be the same? Why is it that some are like, really got it, and some aren't? Apparently, our influence is conditional. What's the salinity of Central Heights Church? Are you salt? Are you the salt of the earth? Last Friday with with the SOAR group, we hung out with a pretty cool church. It's called Lighthouse in Steveston. Just a small little replant. I mean, when we went there on Sunday with a group from Kansas, there was other youth joining your youth, by the way. We doubled their service size. But these are some pretty passionate, salty Christians, I'm telling you. They had an event on Friday night Anybody could do this, but they had the vision for it. They, they had a little park, and they called it Intersections. Intersections where faith meets unfaith. And it basically was a folk festival talent show, and it was awesome. And people sang songs, and they read poetry. There was a wonderful Scottish lady who told a story, and it was an amazing, powerful story, And it was just the arts on display and some of it gave glory to God and some of it just gave glory to the art, but it was faith and unfaith coming together. And me and your youth, we had, we practiced some conversations. It says in Colossians 4 verse 6, let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love that. We had some pretty seasoned conversations, I'll tell you. I had some very interesting conversations with the neighborhood of Steveston and it was beautiful and it was practicing what it's like to be salt. Jesus also says, it is you who are the light of the world. Nor do people light a, a, city on a hill should not be hidden, nor do people light a lamp to put it under a basket. That would be silly. Why would you do that? So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good work and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus uses a city metaphor and he uses a lamp metaphor to describe how we're supposed to be light. First is kind of a collective image, a city on a hill. That makes sense, right? City on a hill means it's got a great vantage point. It's, it's above all the obstacles and you can see the enemy coming to attack you from a long ways off. Probably people's minds, most of the people's minds were going, smart. City on a hill, a defensive posture. You know, like, imagine, though, if Jesus has a different thing in mind. This collective image of a bunch of lights coming together means there's a bunch of yous. You know, it is you. It's a plural you. A whole lot of yous coming together in a city. It's like when you're all clumped together at night and there's a reflection off the, off the clouds of a glow. It's not tucked away in the valley or in the forest. No, it's on a hill clear sight lines for protection. But I'm wondering if Jesus is actually not talking about defense for this city, but offense. A city on a hill is to be seen. Remember the scope, it's a big scope. A city is to be the light of the world. Maybe people need to see this light. Maybe it's a light that's meant to be spread out. Maybe the higher the city goes, the further it can be seen from. Maybe the more light it can actually shine I love that. Did you know that light is for shining? <laughs> That's what it's for. You don't have a light and leave it off. It's for shining. Apparently, the same is true for a singular lamp. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, just like you don't build a city and put it in the forest. You put it up high. Light is designed not to be hidden. It's, it wouldn't be natural. We take a lamp, we put it on a stand. Now, just for a minute, this is a, this is a freebie and side to wake you up, don't think about those LED lamps, those LED lights that my wife hates these days because they have no ambiance, right? I bought one of those cheap Costco, they're cheap, and there was two for one, and I'm a Mennonite, so we went camping this summer, and I bought the two for one LED Costco camping light. They're almost useless because when you turn them on and it's really dark outside, everyone's blinded, like you can't see a thing. So you have to actually find something to cover it with. Don't think about those lights. That's silly. And don't think about the lights, those spiral ones either that they're phasing out because there's mercury in there and they're illegal probably at one soon because I don't like those lights either. You know, the kind that you go into your garage and you're looking for something, you just want to grab a, you know, some chicken out of the freezer and you flick the light on and then you wait for five minutes before you can see anything because they're warming up. No, don't think of those lights. Think of the lamp that's lit. You put it under a basket, start to burn. That's silly. And you can't see it. It's warm. It's what every house should have to read by. Candlelight, an old-fashioned lantern. Yeah, light makes things visible. Without light, it's impossible to see. Without light, it's impossible to see color. You know, at dusk, when the sun goes behind the trees, everything gets gray. Have you noticed that? I think in the same way that salt seasons things, light has an enhancing influence on society. It creates safety and meaning, and it helps us find our way. There are so many Old Testament expressions and references to light. Psalm 119 talks about light. Your word is a light to my feet, a lamp to my feet, actually, and a light to my path. Just this morning in my devotions, my Bible reading, I was, in, uh, I was in Isaiah 62. Check out these verses. It says, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light. Then you shall see and be radiant. And then I read um, in, in Isaiah 62, verse 1, I'm not going to be quiet, for until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, her salvation as a burning torch. In the Old Testament, there was this attractional light that the people of God were supposed to beam and radiate and invite people. Jesus flips things around in the Old Testament. He also sends us out, He commissions us out. He says, I am the light of the world and I came down. I didn't just stay as the light. In the heavenlies, beside my heavenly, beside my father, I came down. I incarnated to be with you. And so, like I was, I'm sending you. And there's a there's an offensive posture to our light. Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 8:12. A disciple of Jesus by design, friends. By design should not be hidden. A disciple of Jesus by design. Has an illuminating effect on everybody you meet every single day. It could be that way. <clears throat> Listen to Ephesians 5:8. I was thinking of these verses. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. What? Walk as children of the light. It's not that I only have light in me, because the Holy Spirit and in Jesus dwells me by his presence. I used to be darkness. I used to be, not in darkness, I was darkness. I had no light in me apart from Jesus. I was going nowhere and going nowhere fast as a teenager. Ephesians 5 is reminding us, Paul saying, you were darkness. And now because of Jesus and all this great gospel that we've been singing, we came out of a grave into a marvelous light and we are light. How would that change the way you live? How would that change your neighborhood, your classrooms, your, your work cr- gang at the barista or the construction site? If you actually believe that you are light, the light of the world, the light on your crew, the light on your workforce, the light wherever you are, the light in your family. I mean, I I met a guy in Congo years ago before I was married. He was 13 years old. His name was Bob. He was the son of a bunch of witch doctors. Well, a family that was witch doctors. And he was, it was pretty gory. He was baptized in blood as a little baby and given some crazy powers. And I met him just after he got saved. At 13 years old, he was now an usher in the church. He was there before anybody came because he knew the power of darkness. i love to talk to Bob about what it was like before he knew Jesus, because it was so dramatic. He says, Sam, I used to send curses on people to kill them. I would inflict people with sickness because my family wanted, through me, to just sow destruction into our society. Can you believe this, that this is actually possible? For him, it was not superstition. He listed the names of people who'd passed away, and he believes He's carry, He was carrying the weight of having actually cursed them with, with disease. Bob, through, a, through an all night deliverance time at a little camp, much like uh, SOAR, a little ministry team, he, 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 he wanted something and he reached out to Jesus. And through a, an all night session, he gave his life to Jesus. When I met him, he was 13, he'd just been baptized. And I said to him, Bob, did you ever try to kill Christians? He said, oh yeah, all the time. Because my family hated pastors. Because they were, they were, they were ruining our, repu- our reputation and they were ruining our livelihood. And when people got saved, they didn't need us anymore. So they would often commission me to send cur- to, to put curses on pastors. I said, well, w- did that ever work? He said, no. It's like they're emul- emulating Light. Did you know that every Christian Bob told me has a ring of fire around them? And here's the sad thing he said, nobody knows it and no one's living like it. 13-year-old boy, I asked a few years later how Bob's doing. Apparently he's an elder in the church. He's doing really well. That to me is is, is what Paul's talking about here. One time you were darkness and there was nothing good going on in your life. Now you are light, so walk as children of the light. When anything is exposed with the light, it becomes visible. Death and darkness are synonymous. They're the same. Light and awakeness and light and life, they're the same. And I'm telling you, our city needs a wake-up call of light to be called into this marvelous light. We are so bound by many things. In this same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. That's what verse 16 says. The purpose, it is a purpose to this light. It's so that others may glorify our Father who is in heaven. We don't get the credit. And If you you just read the Gospel of Matthew, it's amazing. Matthew 9, verse 8, Jesus just, or the disciples, the people witness the freedom of a, of a, and the healing of a paralytic man. And it says, when the crowd saw the paralyzed man healed, they glorified God. What kind of good works would it be so that people in this city would give glory to our Father in kingdom, in, give glory to our Father who is in heaven? What would it look like? Is it over-the-top generosity? Like just, just an act of crazy generosity? Would it be a positive spirit or some sort of peace in crisis? We can emulate that. Would it be a miraculous healing? I mean, that, that would do the trick. We influence others, I think is what Jesus is trying to say here. We influence others. We can positively influence each, each other or we also have the potential to not be so salty, to actually hide the light. But I'm telling you, if we hide our light, our families, our streets, our workplaces, and our cities are gonna stay unaffected. And I'm not willing to give my life for that. Friends, we can't expect society who doesn't know Jesus to live like they do. They just won't. And another story from, from English Bay, we sent the, the, the sore participants out to just hang out at English Bay, you know, Denman and Davie area there in Vancouver. One of them came back with a video saying, Sam, you should have joined this bike trip. I'm like, cool, I watch it and I'm like, okay, there's a police um, escort for this bike gang, but I'm like, why? Are, what kind of weird jerseys are? What, they look skin colored. Wait a minute, are they all naked? And the, our sore participants, yes, your youth, were shocked as they were looking at the ocean one minute, looked up at the street the next, and what, like a hundred people with no clothes on on a bicycle? That's rebellion, friends, and a pretty sad state of it. We can do whatever we want. That's where society goes without Jesus. And it's shocking in some ways. And now we all have mental images that we're not going to forget. But that's what you'll remember me for. That's my job. There's a couple of verses right at the end that Pastor Tim gave me, and we just need to unpack before we go. And they're confusing. At first, past they were confusing to me too. I'm going to summarize them really simply. This is the part where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And there's two parts. Verses 17 and 18, it talks about Jesus and the law. Verses 19 and 20, it talks about us, the Christian and the law. And it actually kind of relates to being salt and light. Jesus and the law. So it says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. For it's all gonna be fulfilled and nothing is gonna pass away, not one little dot. Not one iota until it's all been accomplished. Jesus is saying that lawlessness creates chaos. Jesus understands that the law was meant to bring a semblance of order and right living to morality, less, and chaotic world. He didn't come to abolish the law and create anarchy. That would be crazy. But he understands that the law and its rules and regulations could only go so far in bringing law and order could only go so far to bring meaning and purpose to life. And they certainly created a system, hear me, where relationship with a holy God seemed like a gargantuan task. Like it just seemed huge. Picture lawless society like a big hole in the ground. And And the law is like constantly adding another rule, another regulation, another step, another sacrifice, another something to try to get out of this hole to reach a holy God. How far is it going? Two-thirds of the way, half of the way? It's not filling the void. Jesus, the word to fulfill the law, I didn't come to abolish it, but to complete it or fulfill it literally means to fill up. That's what Jesus is talking about. So everything the law did not quite solve for y'all, I am solving. If Jesus completes the law by filling it up completely as if there was no hole there ever before, he bridges the gap between a holy God and us unholy people. All of a sudden we have access to this God and he comes near. The law down there that's trying to fill it up is all about duty and all about us, and Jesus reverses that and says, it's all about laying your lives down for somebody else, and I'm going to, by grace, save you and give you the biggest purpose you can ever imagine on life. I'm going to give you a mission, and it's to spread this news to other people. That doesn't happen with the law only. I wish I could tell you the four-hour conversation I had with a Hindu who married a Sikh on a plane just a month or two ago. He was so intrigued by a Jesus that wanted relationship with us, by a God who speaks outside the temple, by a God who was interested in his life, very interested. Four hours we talked on a plane. He was so interested by this ultimate price that Jesus would actually pay for him as he's been trying to create and he's stuck in a hole and trying to, you know, do more to reach this God. That's Jesus in the law, he came to fulfill it. Verses 19 and 20 talk about us in the law. So lawlessness was and is a real thing for us as human beings, isn't it? The chaos of it is real, but I think the reality to live rightly is also real, is it, is it not? So the standard is quite high and attainable. So that's why Jesus says in verse 19, whoever relaxes these laws or teaches them becomes or even takes the least one of these laws and relaxes them and starts to teach others to do the same, you're going to be the least in the kingdom. Don't relax the commandments. Don't do that. Why would you do that? Would you deem some of them as insignificant or unnecessary? Do you want least in the kingdom on your day? Office door, that's a lousy title, don't do that. Who wants that? If the standard becomes too low, we all look the same. I don't wanna say we're all gonna be riding our bikes with no clothes on, but you get the picture. We don't look distinct. We look no different than a rebellious society. If the external laws are set way, way, way too high, no one would be able to achieve them. And that's why Jesus says, and so unless your righteousness exceeds that, in verse 20, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. You want to jump in the hole without me and go back to the whole sacrificing system? You better be more committed to it than the scribes and the Pharisees, and they are doing a great job of it. If you really want to try to fill the lawless hole with rules, you better be perfect, and nobody is. The lawless hole in the ground will never be filled with that kind of righteousness and it's pretty hopeless for us if we try to relate to the law that way. I love this quote by John R. W. Stott. He talks about a different kind of righteousness, a different kind of right living. And he says Christian righteousness or Christian right living is better than that of the five Pharisees and the scribes because it's deeper. It's a righteousness of the heart. Jeremiah 31 says, as he's looking ahead in verse 33 to what Jesus is actually going to do in me and in you, he says, I'm going to put my law within them and I'm going to write it on their hearts. That kind of righteousness gets at my mind and my heart and my motivation. It's an inward renovation versus an outward behavior modification. Big difference. Jesus renovates our hearts, our motivations. He gets at my internal affections. The Lord looks at the heart. Guys, this is radical. It's only possible with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, a triune God, and the overhaul of who we are. This is the evidence of new birth, and it's the only way that gets us into the kingdom of heaven, friends. In verse 20, that's how we get in. You know, our influence is directly related to this character transformation. I've given my life to calling people to be disciple makers, to be renovated from the inside out, to be filled with the Spirit, because we need power these days. We need to live different than the law is telling us to live. What's your longing? What are you longing for? What is this world longing for? It's actually this. This is greatness. That's why Jesus says whoever does and practices this and teaches them will become great in the kingdom of heaven. I read this the first time and I'm like, I want to be the greatest. (laughs) He didn't say the greatest because that's exclusive. There's only one greatest. Don't be a disciple and read it that way. But the term great, that can apply to any one of us in this room. If you live with his invert transformation greatness is salty living yeah, i think it's time friends to take seriously our influence in society as i conclude galatians 5:14 says the whole law remember that complicated bit about the law here that i'm trying to figure out salt and light is so easy right but the law i think i love how galatians puts it the whole law is fulfilled in this love your neighbor as yourself Who's doing that? Not a lot of people in my townhome complex. They're blaming everybody for everything that goes wrong in there. I mean, even the guy who, who, who scraped the snow, bless his heart, during the winter is still getting blamed from the wrecked curbs, you know? And everybody with a different ethnicity or color is getting blamed for the stuff laying around. It drives me nuts. None of us are loving our neighbor as ourselves because it's hard, but that is what a renovated heart does. Who's doing this? Listen to what John Stott says to us. Jesus' followers are to be different. Now, I could have said that, but I, I didn't. He said it. Jesus' followers are to be different. This is what got me. Different from nominal church attenders and different from the secular world bunch of us could walk out of here as nominal church attenders and not be living salty, light lives because we're going to be not that. We're to be different from nominal church attenders, from nominal secular world, different from the religious and the unreligious. Jesus is not setting up a religion, friends. He's setting up, I like Rod's word here at the beginning, a movement of people who follow the king. The church and the world are two distinct communities. You have the yous, it is you and us, and you have the world and the earth. On one hand, you've got us. On the other hand, you've got the world. Society, I'll tell you how it's distinct, and this is not rocket science. Read the newspaper. It can't help itself from deteriorating and self-destructing. It can't help but stuff. And there's people out there. It's distinct in that they're losing their way. Just ask your neighbors. A society without salt, this is challenging, and without the influence of light is going to act in harmful ways. They're going to be rebellious. They're going to twist intimacy around and create all kinds of weird expressions of it. They're going to be violent and they're going to create distrust and mistrust and erode community, erode the family. That's where they're headed. Yes, human rights in our legal system have a way of modifying and slowing down the erosion, but the heart of a person must be regenerated by Jesus and only Jesus from the inside out. So Jesus says it is you and me who are the salt of the earth. And friends, salt doesn't, I wish I had a big pile of salt or a humongous salt shaker it doesn't stay in the salt shaker. It's meant to be scattered and dissolved in the french fries. It's a costly scattering. It's a mingling of these two distinct worlds and a flavoring and an influencing of it. Is your influence worth its salt? I'm going to call up the worship team, and I want you just to think about that question as we sing this last song. Do you know this Jesus that renovates your heart from the inside out? Or are you thinking that church and pastors and preachers preach something else or live something else because we're a bunch of hypocrites? And often we are. That's not who Jesus is. He loves us and he loves to change us. And he doesn't make us religious. He makes us more like Jesus. Jesus was the least religious guy on the planet. He loved people who he shouldn't have loved. So take a moment to pause and, and, I'm, and just think about your influence. We heard Aaron White last Thursday. Aaron White's lived for 20 years in the inner city in Toronto and the last 13 years in the downtown east side. He came and challenged us on SOAR and he told a little story of him walking with his little boy because he lives right by Oppenheimer Park. And all the guys on the street and the gals were calling, hey, Aaron, hey, Aaron, hey, Aaron. And his dad, his little son, looked up at his dad and went, dad, you're famous. And he looked down, he said, only on Cordova Street, son, only on Cordova. Where's your Cordova? Where are you famous? I don't know if you caught it, but Caleb summed it up pretty good. His one-liner after SOAR was this. I wrote it down, Caleb, if you're here. If you're not, we saw you on video. I am uniquely qualified to reach my friends for Christ. I love that. Maybe it's his high school. Maybe it's where he's working this summer. We're all uniquely qualified. We've all got a Cordova Street. Where are you famous? What's your influence going to be?